I, I'm very grateful to you uh, for asking me to come up to talk about a subject that obsesses me, but I have to say that the word creativity makes me my skin crawl. It's uh, got a kind of uh, Victorian, I shouldn't say that here, it's got a kind of romantic, <laughs> uh, kind of romantic overtone, which keeps us, I think, um, from focusing on the fact that there are lots of activities which we don't think of as creative in that, you know, that a coup de food of a, a sudden uh, insight, which are um, in fact very productive and um, uh, uh, it's in a kind of unrecognized creativity, particularly among ordinary people. A better word for, uh, I think, as a, uh, for what you are doing, as I understand it, is the word poine in, uh, in Greek, which is really the word uh, to make. Uh, it's where the word poesis comes from, uh, the word poetry in English. And the idea of poine for the Greeks was that all acts of making have homologues to each other, so that what a potter does has a homologue. It's not an analogy, but uh, it has homologic um, features to say making a law. This is a platonic idea of, uh, of making, which is that if you know how to make a pot well, you know how to make a law well. Debatable because uh, it doesn't go that way in reverse. Uh, I don't think many politicians would be very good potters, but you understand what the idea of it, of it is. Um, and the term craftsmanship is about the activity of focusing on the qualities of poine. Uh, there's no exact word for it in uh, the ancient languages. Uh, there are, uh, but the idea about it is that making something well uh, is a form of excellence in the object which becomes an excellence in the maker's practice. That is, if the object is good, uh, you become an improved person. And this was what Ruskin, for instance, seized on in this notion of craftsmanship, that uh, the making of something well organizes the self in such a way uh, that um, the person making uh, becomes a better person. I'm not quite going to look at, at uh, craftsmanship in quite those Greek terms, but I do want to talk to you tonight about the relationship between the physical and social aspects of craftsmanship, that is a pursuit of quality in the making of either things or social relationships. I want to put these two together. And um, I should argue, but I won't because we won't have time, that this is the basis for what we really should be thinking about when we think about creativity which is the relationship between the physical and the social. Well, maybe we can, we can talk about that at the end. Um, so what's going to happen in this talk is I'm going to talk to you about three forms of physical craft and then three homologous forms of craft. Uh, and what I'm focusing on here are skills. That is, what are the skills of making something well? Um, and let me start with uh, the physical. Um, and here, since um, all life is like gall divided into three parts, I'm going to talk to you about one, three things. First, about a rhythm of skill development. Uh, secondly, about the idea of adjacency as uh, a principle of uh, developing diverse skills. 
and thirdly about the relationship of problem solving and problem finding. And I'm going to try and illustrate this in a way, I mean my books are about this in the domain of technology, but I have a nightlife and my nightlife is I'm a, a cellist. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving you after supper tonight because I'm, I'm playing a concert uh, tomorrow at one o'clock, which I'm very worried about. Um, I have to go home and practice. But I'm going to try and use some musical examples from how we develop skill as a cellist to um, uh, give you an insight to what these, these physical forms of craft uh, are. Um, the rhythm of skill development can be described as a, as a process of the movement from tacit knowledge to explicit revision to the reinscription in tacit knowledge. And I promised you I'd give you a musical example and I'll start with something called vibrato on the cello. Well, I have to do it this way. This is what a vibrato looks like. It's uh, the way you, can you see this? is the way you color a note and um, it's, uh, you find the center, tonal center of a note and then by doing this motion, which only takes about 20 years to master, uh, you are able to give it different kinds of colors. Now, when people learn uh, to vibrate first, their first impulse is to think about what's happening, uh, that you're going back and forth like this. And in, uh, in fact, that's, it's not a bad way to begin, to think that the, the elbow is down here is controlling this. And in time, that motion becomes ingrained as tacit knowledge. You don't have to think about it when you want to vibrate. Uh, you just make this elbow movement. But it's an extremely crude uh, way of vibrating. It produces uh, only the, uh, a, a particular kind of color, which uh, um, you get a very different color like this. This is just one color. And when a young student um, has mastered this, there's a moment that comes when he or she says, well, this is not very interesting. At that point, there's a kind of explicit um, uh, 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 interrogation to what the habit is that's been formed in, um, uh, in, this, in this tacit domain. And that can take many forms. People, by th if you, it's like with a sport, you know, if you think about what you're doing, you stop being able to, to do it well. Same thing for cellists or any musician. When you're at the point of challenging a habit, basically you have a breakdown of what you're able to do. Um, like all breakdowns can be very, very uh, productive uh, with the help of a good, strong teacher who says, better, get better, do it better. Uh, and you think about the fact that maybe you have to slow down your vibrato. But the important thing is that that's not the end of the story. That then that activity of self-criticism becomes reinscribed uh, as habit. The important thing about this, and it's a key element of all craftsmanship, is that self-consciousness is a medium, but not a destination of what we do when we're craftsmen. You can imagine, uh, think about something very simple like hammering a nail, uh, which is a much simpler uh, thing. You learn how to hammer it in one way, you think this, I'm not really getting it right. You then bop your thumb by hammering it wrong, Thereafter, the idea is not that every time you hammer a nail, you think, Vorsicht, be careful, but that you acquire a way of doing the, the activity better, which means that you can't think about it. 
uh, that you don't have to think about it, that it happens. And this is a rhythm of skill development which, as I've argued, uh, attends all forms of craftsmanship. And it means Pache, somebody like um, Heidegger, that the end point of, um, of getting better at something is not being self-conscious. You understand how that works? Um, and that's a very important point. I mean, one of the issues about craftsmanship is that you know how to do something without knowing that you know. It's a very, very important point. And as teachers, we make a terrible error when we don't take it to that third stage. Now, there's one aspect, oh god, you have to shut me up. I'm, I just launched into this. Let me just say one thing about this rhythm, um, uh, which is a, a kind of dialectic between the tacit, the explicit, and then the re-ingraining of tacit habit, which is its time frame. Um, I suppose the thing I'm most famous for about uh, craftsmanship is that I did the calculations which result in the so-called 10,000-hour rule. And let me just tell you what that's about. I and my team of suffering postgraduate students uh, tried to figure out, we had some parameters of how you get from being sort of uh, amateurish at something to being really good at it. Musicians, lab technicians, and uh, people who play golf. Uh, three physical things. And what we found out is that the movement from being a sort of okay amateur to, to being really proficient is roughly 10,000 hours. I since, since wish we would have come up with something like 11,690, you know, it's, this is just a number, but it is an approximate number. What that translates to is about three or four hours a day of work over four or five years. And it's in a very important uh, number. Um, just take it as a, it's just a rough number. Because what it means is that getting, some, really getting a craft is slow. And that rapid forms of learning, right, where you get the right answer the first time, are not part of this rhythm of incorporation, which is what this tacit, explicit tacit is about. That is to say, being able to do something once, rely, uh, just by chance, or to have a quick answer on a test, doesn't mean that you really have the skill of performing that action over and over and over again. And to really ingrain it takes uh, time, much more time in the industrial world than most physical laborers get, which is one of the reasons why we have a, a fall in, 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 in um, manual skills in this country. We don't give people the time to practice the 10,000 hour rule. That's what flexible neoliberal capitalism does. But I don't want to get lost in that, in that. But the point I want you to take about this is that this is a rhythm of years. And it's very difficult to speed it up. Uh, uh. Now, let me next talk about, I can speed up here, that's my rule. So this is how we get better. This is, the, I think, the fundamental dialectic of how we get better, uh, which always ends in unknowing and is slow. I want to talk about how we expand next, um, what we mean by a skill in another way, uh, which is simply uh, that when we become more skilled, we have different ways to address a single issue. There's not, in other words, a tight means and fit in craftsmanship. Only one way to do something right. That's an amateur way of looking at it. I'll give you another 
way of um, thinking about that in terms of the vibrato. If you want to slow up like this, uh, you have to, at a certain point, understand what this part of your back is doing for reasons that are, are, have to do with the musculature that runs from, from uh, basically from the wrist to uh, down here uh, in, the, in the back. Uh, these are uh, physical twisting like this seems to have nothing to do with this. In fact, the two are linked motions, just as in golf, a swing like this involves actually uh, motion on your forward knee, although it's, the knee is itself uh, unmoving. It, anyhow, we won't get into that. The point about this is that making those connections between, I can vibrate with, my, with this pretty much un, disengaged using muscles on the side here. And in scientific work, this principle is even more true, uh, if you think about it, that if we had a strict one-to-one -one correlation between means and end, that there was only one way to skin a rabbit or something like that, that many scientific problems would not admit of a solution because uh, sometimes we have to invent uh, uh, we have to have more complex techniques than just one thing to make something happen, as in the vibrato. Now, the argument that I've made about this is that what happens at this point when we're trying to put two different kinds of either physical movements or te technical kinds of knowledge together is that we push them close together and that they're, uh, so that they're adjacent, so that feeling this and feeling this, you do at the same time. It's very difficult to do this. Um, or if you're, there are two different ways of using a pipette, for instance, any, anything like that. The point is that when you put them together, um, you have something where you have two, uh, you have two unlike things next to each other. And my argument about this is that uh, at this point, what happens is that you have another kind of synthesis uh, uh, that out of the adjacency of two different techniques comes um, a, synth a synthesis of something that makes them both happen at once. This may seem like, so what? Um, it bears on the issue of what's called technology transfer. Because technology transfer, as, uh, as it's done poorly, as in this country by, um, well, let's not go into that. But technology transfer of a very bad sort is, I can't solve a problem this way, so I'll do something else instead. Instead of understanding that, by, uh, that this is a more dynamic trans. Thing. We don't apply a technique to a problem. We generate techniques. And we do that by putting unlike forms of practice together, whether they're bodily motion or um, uh, you know, pipette technique or whatever. So this is the way in which I think craft work, uh, new crafts, one of the ways in which new crafts are created that is, we are putting unlikes close together. So in the classroom, for instance, if you're explaining a particular procedure and you want to enrich that procedure, you take something which is not its cousin, near cousin, but its far cousin and put it close together. And those two different ways of knowing will generate a new kind of knowing or a new technique. Um, you're not transferring. This is not a mechanical thing. It's, it is, pardon the horrible word, it's creative. This is how you create a new technique by this adjacency. And what I've argued in my book is that what 
this is the explanation for what we think of as intuitive leaps. That what we call an intuitive leap is really uh, a kind of a reasoning about adjacency. You understand what I'm talking about? That it isn't just, God, I suddenly had this fantastic idea. It came to me out of the clouds, out of the Victoria, well, out of the romantic uh, ether, you know. Uh, it's that I had two things close together and I leaped back and forth between them and I got a new technique out of them. Uh, so I would say that the development, uh, the summary of this is that new skills uh, or multiple skills develop due to the practice of adjacency or the experience, as in when you're playing the cello, the, the experience of physical adjacency of things that aren't adjacent. Now, the third thing I want to say to you about physical craftsmanship is the role of problem solving to problem finding. And here I, um, I want to signal to you that the important role that experiences of resistance play in, uh, in cra craftsmanship. Let me give you the theory of this, which is not uh, original to me. The theory derives from old work by Lionel Festinger on cognitive dissonance. And you know what that work was. Uh, you know, these pigeons giving contrary rules for how to get whatever pigeons want to eat at the end of the day, or you could imagine what they want to drink. Was it whiskey? Was it water? Whatever. But the idea is that they have a cognitively dissonant feel, and the result of that that Lionel found was that they focus more, that the resistance leads to an increase in cognitive attention on the situation which is dissonant. Um, it's a very important finding, and it runs counter to the technological idea of many people in Silicon Valley of frictionless, of frictionless problem solving. That is, that the, the idea is to banish resistance, that um, you, never, you never spend, you're not going to spend money on technology that's hard to use, and spend money is the key there. But in cognitive development, it's as it were that you, you have to experience resistance in order to focus focal attention. Um, just to recur for the last time to the vibrato thing, um, there is always in vibrato the knuckle uh, doesn't work well on this. Our knuckles. Un if apes could play the uh, string instruments, they'd be great because their, their knuckles are, are much more flexible than ours. We have this sheath like this, which helps us have this kind of grip. Uh, and you'll always have this knuckle resistance in vibrating. And as you become really skilled, as you move into the domain of being a professional musician, what you do is work with that resistance. You know when it's going to come. Uh, you, in some ways, I use it as a way of slowing down, slowing myself down. The natural tendency is to go very fast. Um, but the idea is that when we experience resistance, uh, that we're actually, our focal attention um, becomes greater. Uh, and this bears on the relation of, more largely, the issue of problem solving and problem finding. Inferior craftsmanship is about saying, I overcame the resistance, the problem is solved. It's over, you know? Vincitor, you know, I did it, uh, or we did it. Uh, the resistance is banished. Much better quality technical work is saying, 
what were the resistances we encountered? Is there something really interesting about them? Is there something uh, that needs to be explored? Or did the solution, which is another form of resistance, that we came up with to a particular technical problem, in turn engender other problems? Right? We solved one thing only to have in uh, good, I suppose, Jewish fashion, to have another problem pop up, you know, that you never get to the end of it. That's extremely important, I think, in educational work, and particularly because of the, the educational regimes that we're seeing which penalize people who want to dwell in resistance. Uh, I don't know in this country whether you have this regime of standardized tests we have called the SAT, do you know anything like this in this country? Yeah, what? Well, if you think about what that does, the SAT discounts completely the role of this relation between resist, uh, the experience of resistance. If somebody dwells in a wrong answer, uh, they do worse on the test, you know, they concentrate what, what the hell is that answer about? That's somebody really working, why is that wrong, you know? That's somebody using their curiosity. Whereas the kind of slicky who just solves all the things that they know initially is, is incurious. And in my view, this kind of testing surfaces a kind of superficial intelligence that doesn't do the real work we want to do in uh, the development of skills, which is promote people's curiosity, which can only happen through working with, with resistance. And the resistance can only take a shape through this cognitive, uh, experience of cognitive dissonance and its focal attention. So this is a huge, a debate now in um, technological circles. I'm part of a group called Craft and Code, uh, which are uh, people mostly at Microsoft, but now increasingly at Google, which as it becomes a, 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 a mon monopoly, who um, don't believe that frictionless technology is sort of good for users, who believe that the craft and code is learning how to deal with problems. And that the coder, the person writing code, shouldn't be banishing these for the user. That the user should work harder, become more sophisticated, become him or herself a craftsman. And I don't want to go there, but um, this is why this is the great appeal of Linux, if any of you used that system. It's much more difficult to use than what you can do with the, um, with the, well, you can't really get into the Microsoft kernel. But the thing about it is you know much more about what you're doing because you have this experience of resistance. A lot of Linux leads to cognitively dissonant fields where things don't compute in all the dimensions. And but you know much more about uh, what it is to use a computer by engaging in this. Okay, so these are three aspects of developing craft, physical craft. One is the rhythm of skill development, which is this tacit, explicit, tacit uh, uh, dialectic, which is slow and which ends in a kind of there, there's the, it's anti-Heideggerian in my view. It doesn't end in greater consciousness. It ends in greater uh, tacitness, in a, an enlarged field of tacitness. The second aspect of this is the adjacency principle, that is that we develop new skills by putting two unlike skills close together, and uh, which is to say we're not, um, transferring technology, we're developing it, or technique, we're developing it. And in my view, which you can either buy or not, that this is what we mean by in 
how this is an explanation for what are called intuitive leaps. That it's not eureka, it's got a structure, okay? And the third is the relation between problem solving and problem finding, which highlights the role of resistance and disputes the notion of frictionless um, technique uh, and privileges people dwelling in resistance rather than as in these ubiquitous tests running away from them. Now, what's this all got to do with the social world? Uh, this is technical, this is the technical nous that we develop. When I started writing my book, uh, which I still regret the title, together, forced on me by my publisher. I wanted to call it Social Craft, and he said, you have a hundred people read it. I should have resisted. Uh, what's this got to do, this physical craftsmanship, with social craftsmanship? And I, I want to tell you three ways in which I think there's a homology between them. First is in the social world, the social skill, I'm going to talk about three social skills, dialogics, bindungen, and again, um, and the relation between solidarity and um, cooperation. Dialogics, these are three, I think of, um, and I should say about the third, that I'm going to contrast solidarity as a skillless activity to cooperation as a skilled activity. So let me start with the first. Dialogics is a very fancy name uh, coined by a whole group of, of Russian linguists in the 20s. Uh, uh, to deal with what we would commonly call uh, listening skills. That is, how can, I'm trying to think of how to put this, how can, when somebody says something to us, how do we intuit what their use of words means to say but doesn't say? How do we get at the meaning rather than at the surface of words? And the idea of the dialogical imagination, as in Bakhtin, the readers of Mikhail Bakhtin, is that dialogical thinking is about essentially the probing of the unsaid and the non-linear, and that it's a skill to do that. Uh, it's what we mean when we say we're listening intuitively to other people. We're listening to what's said and to what's unsaid as two adjacent realms of, of value and putting them together. Uh, in the social world, this has to do with, with empathy with the other. It also has to do I've argued, with the use of a certain kind of voice in social relations, which is the use of the subjunctive, at which you Brits are past masters. I would have thought that, uh, uh, perhaps. Now, I know in academia, this is all the prelude to you know, the stab in the, in, in the heart. But what's happening there is that the skillful use of the subjunctive voice is a way of opening up zones of ambiguity which people can share. And what the studies that I did of this were that people arguing with each other are essentially not listening to what the others say. They're, there's point scoring rather than learning from the other. Uh, and the declarative voice is the means of doing that. Uh, whereas the subjunctive voice is privileging the social in the ambiguous. Do you understand what I mean? That is that you open up the space of the social by being, by being unclear. Um, 
just as you open up the, spatial, the space of the social by the spoken and the unspoken. And this is, I would say, a skill. Um, there are many empathetic people in the world, but how, knowing how to do this how, so that somebody else says more of what they think or that you have a real discussion is something that takes practice. Um, I would say that this combines two elements of the uh, physical craft. It obviously combines problem solving and problem finding. Somebody says, uh, I'll give you an example. Somebody says um, something like, you know, I really don't like those Muslims. And you think, it's a declarative statement. And if you go, ah, oh, really? And they start talking, and what they're really talking about is they don't like upper middle class people who are the sponsors of Muslim immigrants. You're having a different discussion, and it's something unspoken. It's very common in, in racial things that when people make overt comments about race, what they really mean is class. You know? I think that's true in religion, too, as well. But what dialogics is about are the skills of understanding that somebody's talking about black people or about Muslims, and what they're really talking about is their own relation to, to upper-class, condescending Blairite. Let's not get into all of that, but those sorts of people. So. I think that's one way in which both problem-solving finding and this adjacency issue are, uh, uh, come into being. And what does this is the principle here is that you create sociability by problematizing rather than by clarifying. You understand what that is? Uh, that's where the subjunctive voice comes in, all of that. Uh, um, let me talk about Bindung, which is a technical term, secondly, is a sex, second social skill. This is a technical term in German for I, the best thing I know about it, the translation, is glue. Bindung is glue, stickiness. When we talk about a sticky web, the stickiness in, in network theory, the stickiness is Bindung. And um, my argument is uh, that Bindung is developed. Uh, it's developed through the rhythm the same rhythm of skill development, so tacit, explicit, tacit. And I tried to show this in my book in the development of religious rituals in the 17th century, that these were ritual, Protestant rituals that began as Catholic rituals. They break down. The whole ritual process becomes very self-conscious. Self and then is gradually re-inscribed as tacit knowledge of a different sort uh, or of a sort that's slightly different, as in high Anglicanism and Catholicism. But the point about this is that we're learning bin ritual bindung. It's not something that is simply there. It's developed. And practicing a ritual is, in that way, a social craft. You'll be able to read in the spring, Rowan Williams and I have had a ferocious argument about this, one of my best friends, but he's completely wrong on this <laughs> subject. And this is going to be published, I, I can't remember where we're doing this. Because his view is that essentially ritual is, uh, has a non, what makes it work religiously 
is that it has a divine inspiration, that it's kernel, if you like, in, in, theologic, in uh, computer terms, is given by something that's non-human. He would say that, wouldn't he? You know? uh, and I think that's wrong. I think ritual is developed by the same religious ritual, by the same means that we develop vibrato. And uh, he's not very happy with that. And uh, so you can, he's much smarter than I am, so you'd probably win the argument. Um, so you understand that's, uh, at least in my way of thinking, um, all ritual codes develop through this long, slow process, maybe 10,000 hours, maybe not, but around that time of interactions which gradually become taken for granted. And that's the connection. And the importance of that is the error of self-conscious identity talk. When people are always say to you, when people say to you, speaking as a Muslim, or speaking as a Catholic, uh, or speaking as an haute bourgeois, what's happening is that that self-consciousness is actually uh, betrays that the inscription of that identity is not secure. If you are a Muslim who is uh, capable of talking to other people uh, with the security of knowing who, who you are, you don't call attention to the fact. Um, and the error, the, the um, Heideggerian error in social life has terrible consequences, which is that you begin focusing on what is my identity. You're caught in the middle of the cycle of, uh, of the rhythm of, of being skilled at being a Muslim. You're always focusing on this, uh, on this retrospection. I am a, um, I mean, I think there are some identities which are horrible and which should get stuck this way. You know, I think if you were a Nazi, you don't want to get to a higher level of skill in this where you're just, you know, you're a really skillful Nazi. <coughs> but um, what, what I'm pointing out to you here is that an insecure identity is one in which this rhythm has not been fully worked, worked out for, for, for good or for ill. And I think in religious matters, it's for good. I, th I think that our religious beliefs should be founded in our body. And this is a way of bindung, which is this rhythm, is a way to do it. And finally, I want to say to you, um, and, we, and then we have a talk, that the third social craft that I would relate to physical craft has to do with cooperation. And the um, contrast I'm making here is to solidarity to cooperation. Solidarity is a kind of fric is the kind of political and sociological version of frictionless. Right? That we all know who we are as Muslims. We know, all know who we are as Brits, much worse. Um, that uh, there's a unity, and that unity um, is, uh, solidifies us. It tends towards the frictionless. Uh, an example of that is Gordon Brown's famous statement, British jobs for British workers in which the word British covers a host of sins of difference, right? By, it serves as a code word for, for frictionless, right? That things would only get better if it, all the jobs that are available were in Britain were taken by British people. That it, this would be, there'd be less social conflict. You understand how that works. These, these kinds of linguistic codes pervade 
modern society, in which um, terms for solidarity are really doing uh, the work of eliminating um, from the mental thinking of people the complexity of, of what's involved. I'll just give you an example of this. Um, this is a byway, but just let me indulge it. Uh, I asked Brown once, well, what if these are jobs British people can't do? What if you need me, for instance? I'm not British. And he said, it was so revealing, he said, oh, I don't mean you. <laughs> right? So there's another kind of work being done by British jobs for British people. The solidity of that is really saying um, that, um, uh, that these other people are stealing jobs that British people uh, aren't up to doing. You can get into all sorts of stereotypes about this Polish workers and so on. But the point about that is that solidarity is foreclosing, really looking at a different kind of social relationship. And the one I'm interested in is cooperation, skilled cooperation, which is how people who differ can work together. And for them to do so, I think they, of course they need dialogical um, skills, and they need to develop a bindung in its social form. Uh, but almost all of the things that I've talked about, putting uh, two different practices together, which is if you're going to work with somebody who's a different race or religion than you, the adjacency of your, of your two practices is going to make another kind of practice. You're not going to, if I'm a Muslim and I'm working well with the, the Church of England, I'm not going to convert, but I will have another kind of practice. You know, I will develop another domain of interaction. Um, the ability to deal with resistance is critical in cooperation with people who are different from you. It's what, it's what I call practical diplomacy. And um, if what your aim is, is to get rid of resistance, to have a frictionless relationship, uh, then you're engaged in either the annihilation of the other person or in um, uh, something which is infantile, which is we're all nice, you know. So that focusing, the, the role of cognitive dissonance and cooperation is very, very important. It, it's what allows people to focus on significant points of friction, of difference, and to discuss them, or to listen to other people discuss them. So I hope in um, the course of this talk that, um, oh, just sum up this part. So what I'm talking about are th three social skills, which I would call social craft, which are dialogical, which are uh, the formation of bindung, and which are the preference, for the skill of cooperation rather than the a practice of solidarity. And I would say that each of those three skills, social skills, is deeply embodied. What we know how to learn how to do physically is what you know, we, we uh, do as social beings. And how not? We don't put our bodies aside when we go into society. In a way, this is self-evident, isn't it? But they're physical lessons, which I think we often don't think about in the social domain. Uh, just as a concluding note, I would say that um, when people use the, the, um, 
the tag that this is a skilled society. Um, what it suggests is that people are becoming, uh, that there's more and more uh, order of knowledge in the society, that knowledge itself is, is becoming more a sort of source of order in the, in the social domain. And my own view is very different. Because crafts, what I've tried to suggest to you is that crafts are febrile, they're dynamic, they are not necessarily order-making. Some kinds of crafts, some kind of social crafts in particular, privilege, ambiguity. Uh, the role of dissonance and conflict is inherent in learning how to get better at something. Uh, the relationship of problem-solving and problem-finding suggests something that's much more open-ended so the idea that the sort of the skill society is a society in which knowledge makes things more known, more orderly, uh, is wrong. I think it really suggests that we're entering onto a period now, if this is, if we do become a skill society, really, which would be more anarchic than a society in which which has low levels of uh, skill. There's an argument with, I have, or a, not an argument, but it's a reflection on the work of William Morris and, and Ruskin, who believed that the development of craft would give more stability in the craftsman's life. And I just don't see it. I think it goes the other, other way. So, that's how I frame this. So I'd love to get some feedback, comment from you, argument in the subjunctive voice. <laughs>